Hey, Curbsiders, this is Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm excited to announce a new mini series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. We have 11 great episodes for you where we cover core addiction med topics tailored to the general internist, and we will be releasing these weekly episodes starting in July. I'll be joined by my co hosts, Dr. Sean Cohen, Dr. Kenny Morford, and Dr. Natalie Stahl. We believe it's important as ever for internists to play a key role in providing evidence based addiction treatment. So, be sure to tune in this summer wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more by checking out our website at thecurbsiders.com or email us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And tonight we're going to be talking about headaches with a great guest, Dr. Kevin Weber. Paul, how are you doing? I'm great, Matt. Thank you so much for asking. Good energy, by the way, if I give feedback in the moment. (laughs) Thank you, Paul. You know I always want your feedback. And with us, we have a great co-host. But first, Paul, before you introduce our co-host, can you tell people what is it that we do on The Curbsiders? I am thrilled to, Matthew. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Did you like the full name there? Did you like Matthew? I felt like I was, I, I didn't I feel good like in my that. mouth, actually. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> I should mention, uh, you can hear him um, laughing in the background. We are, of course, joined by a, another co-host, uh, Chris, quote, the Chew Man, end quote, Chew. Um, you know him, you love him. He helped produce and write this episode along with Isabel Valdez. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. Why don't I desperately hand off the microphone um, so that you can tell us about who we talked to and what we talked about? We had a great conversation today with Dr. Kevin Weber, who is an assistant professor of neurology and the director of the headache division at the Ohio State University Neurological Institute, Department of Neurology. His clinical research interests include headaches and sports concussion. He completed his neurology training at the Ohio State University and later was chief resident in his final year of residency training. He is board certified in neurology. Kevin later completed his fellowship in headache medicine at the Cleveland Clinic and is UCNS board certified in headache medicine. With an award as an emerging leader in the the American Headache Society in 2020. Kevin is the Associate Fellowship Director of the UCNS Headache Medicine Fellowship at The Ohio State, as well as Associate Residency Director at the ACGME Neurology Residency Program. He also runs a sports concussion clinic with sports medicine. Kevin also serves on the admissions committee at The Ohio State University. Today, he teaches us about when we should consider neuroimaging, some of the new medications out there for acute treatment, such as G-pants, as well as therapies for prophylaxis, such as neuromodulation. Before we get on to the episode, I'd, I'd like to try out a, a new bit, and uh, this so this comes from You're so a, happy right now. <laughs> this comes from a listener uh, on Twitter. I asked I asked the audience if they could help me out with some puns for some upcoming episodes, and uh, Rob Thomas uh, was nice enough to give me this one. You know, Paul, it's weird when I eat homemade bread, I get headaches, but when I'm munching, you know, a baguette over your place, I'm fine. My neighbor, uh, you know, Paul, I think maybe it's migraines. <laughs> Let me take that again. Oh, I messed nope. it up. Wow. Nope. Leave it as is. That's <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. Yep. Nope. Brent, keep this one in. <laughs>
A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Dr. Weber did disclose that he received fellowship support and research grants from AbV, Amgen, Lundbeck, and Lilly. However, on the episode, we discussed a balanced range of therapeutic options in our discussion, and no specific products were endorsed. So, Kevin, this has been a lot of setup. There's a lot of people on this call. I'm sure it's disorienting, but... Uh, now it's time to get to know the audience for, for the audience to get to know you. So can you give them, tell them a little bit about yourself and throw in an interest or hobby that you have outside of medicine? So I'm 38. I'm from, lived in Ohio my whole life, uh, from Toledo. Very proud to be from that town, even though it, it doesn't have a very good name in the world. <laughs> but, uh, um, I did most of my training at OSU at Ohio State and then uh, went away for fellowship to Cleveland Clinic, then came back to Ohio State to practice neurology, headache medicine. I, uh, also do sports concussion, which is a topic for another night. And uh, for hobbies, um, well, I've got uh, two twin boys that are 20 months old almost. Uh, they are a handful. And uh, I love following the sports world. So I'm a big uh, Detroit sports fan because Toledo is not far from Detroit. Um, and uh, they have not been very good for the last 10, 10 years or so at really any sport. <laughs> And the Lions are probably the worst franchise in the history of professional North American <laughs> pro sports. You had Barry but, Sanders for a while there. Yeah, you know that had those were good times. <laughs> for a while, the Cubs. For a while, the Cubs had us, and then they won the World Series. And now it's just now it's just us. But anyway, we. Uh, uh, it's been a sad t- last ten or fifteen years or so, but uh, hopefully they're on the on the rebound. This tells me you're a gritty, resilient physician, uh, and that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, for, for practicing headache medicine, I think it requires that because it's frustrating for patients and it can be hard as, a, as the doc treating them, right? So uh, I'm sure that serves you well, that the, <laughs> your sports teams have prepared you for, for a tough road. Um, I've, I've been spoiled by Ohio State football, though, uh, on Saturdays. I've always said <laughs> thrilling Saturdays followed by humbling Sundays <laughs> in the fall. Yeah, my brother, who will never hear this, um, by the way, uh, when he was a kid, he made it, he decided he was going to be a Lions fan purely out of sympathy for the team. He's like, someone should probably like them. And I thought that was very sweet. Like, he otherwise had no interest in football, but he just felt so bad for Detroit that that was, that was his move. <laughs> well, unless your brother is uh, like 80 years old, he has not tasted success yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> he eventually got broken in football entirely. It may or may not have been the Lions' fault. It's hard to know. Um the, I, gosh, with new twins, I, I don't imagine you have a whole ton of time for any kind of culture. But a question we do like to ask is any recent book, movie, um, TV show, album, any any piece of culture that you've enjoyed or that you found soothing or distracting lately? Well, I do actually like to try to pay attention to music. Um, I'm, a, you know, again, from Detroit, the White Stripes, Jack White. Um, he has a new album out and it's, it's very, very good. It's called fear of the dawn. Um, he is solo now, uh, his, his, uh, ex-wife Meg, who was the drummer in white stripes had pretty crippling anxiety and they had to stop making music a little over 10 years ago. So he's been, you know, mostly with some other side projects and bands since then, um, but he has a few solo albums, and his new one is really, really good. And uh, it's probably his best one since the White Stripes, I, since he was in the White Stripes, I think. 
He's fascinating. Have you had a chance to see him play live ever? I have. I saw him with the White Stripes towards the end of their time, which I feel really blessed at the... Um, gosh, I can't remember the name of it now. It's it's not the Majestic. It's one of the famous theaters in Detroit. Um, and then uh, I've seen him solo act, too. Oh, amazing. Nice, nice. So my question I like to ask often is, what is your favorite failure, and uh, what did you learn from it? And it doesn't have to be related to medicine. Um. Well, this is kind of, it is related to medicine, but, uh, so I'm our associate residency program director in neurology too. And, you know, I have to review applications for residency and I get imposter syndrome. Like basically every time that I review these applications, because (laughs) I actually didn't do, I mean, I didn't fail, but I did not do well on step one as in like barely passing and it's easy to blame it on I was sick for a week um, during the preparation for it but I didn't study enough and I like went to a couple weddings and stuff when I should have just been focusing on studying so I really didn't do that well on step one but I've somehow able to overcome that and you know I always have a special place in, in my heart for people who you know so, so that I don't judge them based on one test and their their whole career because you know I ended up doing pretty well after that. I consider myself fairly successful, but it definitely when I definitely get imposter syndrome quite a bit, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure that's a it seems like that's a feeling that's common to a lot of physicians at least at some point along the way they get imposter syndrome. Oh, the good ones anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words, Paul. Well, it, it's a it's a big topic. Uh, and, and thank you, Kevin, for sharing that. I think we should really get on to uh, a case from Cashlack now to make sure we, we, can, we have time to get to our questions because there's been a lot of – we've done shows on headache before, but there's been advancements. We still – and I think even, even despite the prior shows, Paul, I don't think we'd ever run out of questions about headache. It's just – No. <laughs> Listeners demand a, it constantly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Chris, uh, would you like to start us off with a case from Cashlack? Yeah, I'm going to read from this excellent script that Isabel wrote for us. So, Ada is a 31-year-old female with known history of migraine headaches who presents with a persistent non-traumatic headache that started about two weeks ago. She presents to the clinic because the headache is different from her usual headaches, because it is worse, longer-lasting, and debilitating enough that she missed work. Her headache is unilateral and characterized as intensely throbbing and associated with nausea. She has tried naproxen, furosemide. Uh, and sumatriptan, but nothing has helped her relieve the headache. She stopped taking propanolol after it made her tired and depressed and has now been on topiramate 100 milligrams BID. She's here for treatment, but also wants to know if it's time for that MRI. Her last menstrual period was about two days ago. And so basically, what is your general approach to patients like this or patients who are, who are in your clinic? That's a great question. And this is a hot topic with internal medicine and prim- anyone in primary care is when do I image these people and what do I image? The one thing I'll say is that there's there's actually some guidelines out there. The American Headache Society put out a systematic review and evidence-based guideline. It was published just before the pandemic in headache. It's called Neuroimaging for Migraine, the American Headache Society Systemic Review and Evidence-Based Guideline. There's always been a tendency to somewhat over-image in the past, and they, they had made several recommendations. They said it's not necessary to do neuroimaging in patients with headaches consistent with migraine who have a normal neurological examination. And then you can, can consider it for the following reasons, which would be unusual, prolonged, or persistent aura, increasing frequency, severity, or change in migraine, which is one that's that's a very broad 
and that's very subjective definition. Uh, first or worst migraine, migraine with brainstem aura, confusional migraine, hemiplegic migraine, um, side-locked migraine, and post-traumatic migraine. There's also, if you look at the literature, there's mnemonic called SNOOP, and now it's SNOOP10. It's S-N-N-O-O-P-10 list. <laughs> I like it. And there's a number of different secondary causes that this looks for, including systemic symptoms like fever, neoplasm history, so history of cancer, uh, if there's a focal neurological deficit, older age, just typically after 50 and above, uh, positional headache, papilledema on fundoscopic exam, pregnancy, a headache with autonomic features, post-traumatic onset, and then anyone who's immunosuppressed, uh, like uh, someone on immunosuppressive medications or someone with cancer, which I already mentioned. Typically, especially in a case like this, we would recommend an MRI of the brain, and that's because the CT has really limited use in imaging after with a secondary headache. The CT scan is typically used if there's the worst headache of your life and it's abrupt onset, like a thunderclap headache, you're concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage with a ruptured aneurysm. We also use it if there's a suspicion for skull fracture, like after a trauma. Once you get outside of the, the very acute setting, MRI is the imaging modality of choice in evaluating for secondary headache. And and that's typically, and that's what I would recommend for a patient like this. Now, this patient, it, it does sound like it's a change in her headache pattern, which is a bit concerning. That's a very long headache that she's having, a two-week-long migraine. And typically, migraines are four to 72 hours. So it'd be very unusual for a headache to last that long. And we would consider that status migranosis. This seems like an abrupt change for her. And I do think imaging with an MRI would be appropriate in her case. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. An audience, you know, life is tough and we work in medicine. It's been a hard couple years here in medicine, even before we were in the middle of a pandemic. You know, a lot of us were feeling overworked or burnt out, but you know, you it's you got to take care of yourself, and that's why I'm a fan of BetterHelp because they make it so easy to get yourself into care so that you can take better care of your patients. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. I want you to start taking better care of yourself so you can take better care of your patients. What are you waiting for? This episode is sponsored by Birch Mattresses. Audience, I'm sure you've heard us talk about our Birch mattresses on the podcast. We've had them for over a year now, and both Paul and I are just delighted with our Birch mattresses. My old mattress was lumpy. It was not comfortable. My sleep was poor. And as I've mentioned, I have trouble with my sleep, so I need to do everything I can to get my sleep on point. And that's why I love sleeping on my Birch mattress. It's cool. It's soft. It's comfortable. And I just love it. Birch mattresses are organic. They're made right here in America and shipped straight to your door. There's free shipping, free returns, and a 100-night free sleep trial. I know you're going to love it, but if you don't, you can send it back. They'll pick it up for you. And these things have a 25-year warranty. And yes, I did mention that I might not be alive in 25 years. How do you know you won't be alive in 25 years? So don't judge me for thinking that way. 
Birch mattresses are fantastic, and right now they're giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows. Go to birchliving.com slash curb and check it out. Kevin, I, I think a question I want to ask, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more into the diagnostics, I, I think a little bit and sort of what the workup might look like. But for me, I, I think one of the things I find daunting in thinking about headaches and reading about headaches is there are these categories and subcategories and sub-subcategories, and I'm reading about these new daily persistent headaches, which sound hauntingly like migraines, but are not. And, and I, in my, my simplistic primary care mind, I kind of classify um, chronic headaches as either tension type, migraine type, or, or something else that I should probably have the patient see a neurologist for, which is probably maybe a little bit too simplistic, but can you maybe help me and, and just sort of give me sort of a general framework to think about these types of headaches? Because I really do think the, the sheer variety sometimes I think makes them probably more intimidating than they need to be. I honestly think you're right on track with that categorization because most headaches are migraine or tension type headache. And then the rest are much less common. And almost all of those we would recommend imaging for, including the other primary headache types. You're probably the most familiar with cluster headache and other trigeminal autonomic cephalgias as being other primary headaches. But there's some rare ones like cough headache, a hypnic headache, primary thunderclap headache, which is really scary because that's like you know, the worst headache of your life, but having it over and over again. Jeez. Those types of things, your guys are getting specialties involved in particular, like us and at least neurology. I think that that's an actually a really easy way to think of things is migraine, tension type, or other. I like the framework that the the Snoop 10 that you were going through just to think about imaging. I mean, the, the purpose of the imaging is kind of implied, I guess, by, by your response there that it, essentially your what's the pretest probability is going to be higher that you find something on the MRI with the older age immunosuppressed if it's post traumatic if they have a malignancy um, or you're suspecting malignancy or if they have focal deficits right so that's that's why that list is meant to say like okay these are people with a higher pretest probability patients that just have a classic migraine or tension type headache um, that's been chronic is you're unlikely to find something is that is that how you think about it as well and yes and that's what the evidence shows. So for someone like Ada, our, our case here, we're seeing her in primary care and she's had this headache for two weeks. Typically, it takes a little while to get the MRI as an outpatient. Is this, uh, you know, you, you're, when you say you would get this for her, what's the turnaround time that you would expect that you'd feel comfortable with um, for someone like her? Since this is, a, this is more of an outpatient case, I mean, t- typically at our institution, we can get them within a routine MRI gets done within a month, which I think would mm-hmm. be appropriate and okay. You're really, like you said, you're looking for malignancy, neoplasm. Um, If it's a case where, you know, they're getting worse and worse and worse, it's getting more and more severe, becoming, you know, unbearable to the, or if they're developing progressive neurological deficits, then obviously you would want to expedite the image or, or just send the, go ahead and send them to the emergency room for that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a, a quick question? So, um, just because I'm not always bright with these things. So is this MRI with or without contrast or with and without? Like, I always forget these types of things. What, 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 would, be, what would you recommend and, and That's why? That's a great question because uh, typically if it's just a change in pattern of their headache or worsening headaches, an MRI without contrast is okay. But there are instances where you, 
would benefit from having contrasts, such as a positional headache, which is you're looking for, um, like as in it gets worse with standing up, you're looking for a spinal fluid leak in that case. And that can show up with dural enhancement with the contrast. So you would want to have contrast for that. Uh, if they have a cancer history, it would be good to include contrast. But most cases, you can get by without contrast for the first image. At our institution also, you know, if the radiologist sees something, they will often go ahead and add contrast while the patient's still there. And I've had that happen a couple of times. So in addition to, you know, getting this contrast study, you know, when we're looking at sort of differentiating each of these types of of types of headaches and because um, obviously that might affect the way we're doing treatment. Are there other things that besides history and imaging, are there other labs that we want to get? Do we want to check like, do we see, see if their thyroid's okay, make sure they're not anemic? Like, are there things that you routinely do within your headache clinic? Yes. Um, although those are lower yield, but they're also, um, you know, easier to, to, justify and get um, with a simple blood draw. Um, in a lot of cases, it's labs that you that you all check anyway, uh, such as CBC, CMP. Um, we will check thyroid. B12 is a big one um, that we check along with the methylmalonic acid. Um, in Ohio, almost all of our patients are vitamin D deficient, so I typically check that as well just to... Um, there is some evidence in headache that low vitamin D levels can worsen migraine. Um, and, and in our state, we have a lot of clouds. So uh, <laughs> almost everyone here is vitamin D deficient. Yeah, right. Um, right. So, but those aren't as, I think the image is the most important thing. Um, the labs are, you know, a nice thing to send along with someone who's having a worsening or change in their headache pattern just to make sure that you're not missing anything else. Because a lot of times it is they have migraine. It's someone like this. And, and, I, and I would suspect if this woman has a normal exam that it will probably come back normal. MRI will come back normal, and something else is causing this worsening in her headache besides a brain tumor in her head. Now, you get the image to rule that out, but a lot of times it comes back with a normal, and then the patient says, my MRI is normal, but I'm still having this headache all the time. What do I do now? Those labs are helpful to check also, but then there's then you have to start thinking about other aspects of things going on, like, you know, how's her cervical spine? Is she have really bad neck pain? Does she have occipital neuralgia? Is she, did she have a huge change in her stress levels recently or stress levels or mood? Has there been a big change in her sleep pattern recently? Is she a nurse and did she just switch from day to night shift? I tell my patients to think about migraine like it's an an irritable old miser set in their ways (laughs) and your brain is this, this, uh, is set in its ways and doesn't like changes in routine. So it doesn't like lack of sleep. It doesn't like being hungry. It doesn't like being thirsty. It doesn't like changes in the weather, which again, we can't do anything about living in Ohio, but there are some things you can do. You can stay hydrated. You can eat regular meals. You can try to keep your sleep pattern consistent as possible. And sometimes a change in those things can be the impetus for a long attack like this or just a worsening of their migraine. Can I ask about the cervicogenic 
headache. Maybe that I'm not sure that's the right term or not. I saw Paul. I saw Paul kind of like get also activated when you said that. I'm just I'm just curious. <laughs> is that how much? Uh, that's not something that I usually think to ask about, though I have seen it on people's problems lists, problem lists like cervicogenic headache. Can you talk a little bit? Is it is it pretty convincing that they're tied together? And have you had success if you if you go after that with controlling the headaches? Yeah, so that's a great question. So cervicogenic headache is its own secondary headache, technically, according to the International Criteria of Headache Disorders. And by definition, to get diagnosed with that, by definition, you have to respond to some sort of a cervical block. Mm. Now, I diagnose it all the time without going to that that trouble. And, and the cervicogenic headache by the ICHD3 criteria implies that that's the headache type and not migraine related. Like it's just headache coming from your neck. Um, this We're just getting into expert opinion here, but in my expert opinion, there's a lot of cervicogenic components to patients with migraine, especially chronic migraine, but even patients who have episodic migraine. There's a huge percentage of those patients who have a cervicogenic component to their headaches. Um, a, is it a contributing factor? Um, and, you know, there's limited data on physical therapy in migraine control just because there's different um, patterns of therapy, um, different, you know, techniques for physical therapy. But the evidence overall has been supportive so far. It's just not very robust. Um, so I'm just speaking from expert opinion here is that a great majority of my patients have a cervicogenic component to their pain, particularly the refractory or chronic headache patients. Great. Thank you. And I think that's also why why Botox works so well, too, for a lot of patients. <laughs> oh, interesting. Is for Botox for chronic migraine, because several of the injections are in your neck and, and trapezius muscles. So you're saying that, you know, you find a lot of your, your patients may have a component of, like, cervicogenic pain. Like, how often do we see, like, a mixed headache picture? Because I always feel like I have some of these patients who get a tension headache, but then it gets them to have a migraine, or someone starts off with migraine, obviously it might cause them to have tension. So a lot of times, I, I, I sort of, when I get these histories, I sort of see, like, a mixed picture, which then, then you know, obviously we're going to get to this a little later, but then so, that sort of colors the way in which I approach their treatment, and um, maybe... If I see, see there's like a tension component, then I might try attacking that more than just their migraine or the other way around. That's a great point too. So that's a little bit controversial in our field, but you know there are some headache specialists who think there are distinct tension and migraine headache, and then there are some like me who think it's more of a continuum of pain. And you know, some patients have a mix. Of, a lot of patients have a mix of both. So even when I when they for instance, when I, one thing I ask every patient is how many headache days do you have per month and how many migraine days do you have per month? Usually, but not always, the headache days number is higher than the migraine days number, which means that there implies that there are some days where it's mild, but not uh, involving other migraineous features like nausea, vomiting, photophobia, phonophobia. It's not as incapacitating. Maybe it's a three out of 10 instead of a seven out of 10 pain. They can go about most of their activities. It's just more annoying. Um, and I would say from experience that almost all of my chronic 
migraine patients have that that mixed picture. Uh, there there are some patients who have they have either migraine or nothing. Um but that's less common. I think we should probably start to wrap up the first case because I want to there's a lot of new therapies and and I know that's where a lot of the questions are going to lie. Um Chris, do we have a resolution to this case and then maybe I can recap a little bit what we learned about from the first case. Well, it sounds like uh, Dr. Weber here, want, Kevin, wanted to do imaging on this case. So I guess we do imaging on this case and um, ends up being normal. You know, we're looking at, we administer a, sort of a migraine headache cocktail and then she gets sent home for regular follow-up. So sounds like um, things did okay with her. So to recap what we talked about with this first case, this was Ada. She was pretty, she, she was already on and had tried a lot of different therapies for migraine, but her migraines had changed in character and frequency. So that's why we were getting the MRI in her case. And some things we talked about, who needs imaging? We, we talked about the SNOOP 10 mnemonic and a lot of the things that that incorporates are like, who is likely to have a high pretest probability of us finding something? So that's people with focal deficits or who are immunocompromised might have an infection, people that have recently had trauma and, uh, if we're suspecting malignancy. So those are some of them. The other thing was the mig- you, you might be able to get an MRI without contrast as a first study for a lot of patients, unless you're suspecting a low pressure headache, in which case we'd want um, to be looking for a CSF leak. Or if, if we think someone might have malignancy, we would, we would want with contrast in those cases. And then the, the lab workup, probably a lot of this will have been done by the time they get to, to you, Kevin, but it was like CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, TSH, B12, uh, vitamin D. We ask about their cervical spine. How's that doing? Maybe send them to therapy for that. And then we also make sure that their mood is control, mood disorders are addressed and that they're sleeping well and just sort of eating regular meals, staying hydrated. And just like, so good old fashioned, Paul, primary care, right? I'm sure you're, you're right. very capable. <laughs> and this, is, this is a good segue into the next, you know, into discussing the treatment too, because someone like this, Let's say, you know, she she's the most more common what I would expect and, and her MRI ends up being normal. What do you do to prevent this from happening again? Um, and then, you know, you'd, you'd want to discuss with her how often that she's having migraine attacks and whether she would meet criteria for a prophylaxis medication. And but even if she doesn't, someone like this clearly needs a better rescue option so that she doesn't have a two week long migraine again. Um, so you'd want to discuss with her what she's taking for rescue, if anything, or if it's just over-the-counter meds or, you know, maybe whatever she's doing isn't didn't work for this one at least. So you'd want to discuss rescue treatment with her too. Do you want to jump to talking about rescue treatments then? Yeah, I think this case is yeah. really sets it up nicely. So I think maybe maybe before we go on to another case, we can, we can yeah. stick with this one. So Kevin, when we're talking about rescue treatments, I know we have a lot of classical things and we've sort of talked about these in previous episodes. People can look at those, but can you help uh, refresh our, our audiences, our listeners' me- memories on some of the classical treatments? I'm, these are what I've, you know, I normally do, I've done for a decade in clinic, they're triptans, NSAIDs. I know I've been to a lecture of yours before. You've talked about long steroid tapers. I think you taught me about chlorazoxazone. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? Yeah. So the classic migraine rescue treatments are, um, aside from over-the-counter analgesics like ibuprofen, naproxen, um, and Excedrin, which is a combination analgesic of Tylenol or acetaminophen, uh, uh, caffeine, and aspirin. Uh, you have other NSAIDs 
So it's, you know, ones that are prescription NSAIDs. And then you have the group known as triptans, um, which are serotonin agonists. Uh, there's older treatments that are out, more out of favor now. Um, butalbital, acetaminophen, and caffeine, which is known as Fioracet or Fiorinol. Um, still sometimes prescribed, but can, has a pretty high addictive potential. It's a controlled substance, so we try to stay away from that one unless multiple other things don't work. Um, and the pa patient is reliable and um, compliant uh, with your recommendations. Um, and then there's an old, old one called Midrin, which is the, the generic is very difficult to say, but I'll just say that that one is no longer on the market. Um, it wasn't because of safety, but it has to do with FDA reasons. But if you have patients ask about that one, um, you can just cut it off and say it's not available anymore. <laughs> so those are some of the classic treatments that we use. Um, when you were talking about steroid tapers and chlorzoxazone, that was more for um, like status migranosis treatment. Um, we use sometimes like a oral prednisone taper for those, like uh, which we do 60 milligrams um, for five days, and then we go down by 10 per day until they're off. Um, you can use a dexamethasone taper, which is a little shorter, like a three-day taper, 12, 8, and 4. Uh, chlorzoxazone, you can schedule, which is a muscle relaxer or any whatever their muscle relaxer is of choice. If they like, if they have one that they like and use, you can schedule that for five days. Um, we it, even at our center, and not everywhere has this, we have infusion centers that they can come to and get that cocktail of, of medications that they would get if they went to the emergency room without having to go to the emergency room, which would be Catorolac, uh, some sort of anti-emetic, Benadryl, um, and sometimes we add other medications like valproic acid, magnesium, uh, methocarbamol, um, and decadron, which is a, a steroid. Um, we will sometimes add to that cocktail of medications. So the infusion is typically after they've failed some sort of oral treatments, like at home, or if, they, you know, if it's been extended like this for a couple of weeks. In, this, in a case like this, I would either offer this woman some sort of oral steroid taper or the muscle relaxers, or if she maybe had tried those things before and they didn't work, or if she had some sort of contraindication to trying those things, then we would go right to the infusion. Yeah. So you, you guys send people to the urgent care or you have it, you have an outpatient infusion center that can do that for you guys. Yeah. We're very blessed here at OSU. Not everywhere has that, but we have, because mm -hmm. we're a big academic center, we have yeah multiple infusion centers around Columbus, but uh, that we can send. And we do, we try to keep our patients out of the ER as much as possible, but sometimes they have to go. Now, Kevin, I, I recently had, I'm on inpatient right now, and I've recently had a patient with severe headaches that I had neurology help out with. And they did something that I, I'm not really familiar with. They, they started the patient on valproic acid. Can, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, sometimes we do a taper of valproic acid for a couple of weeks to break them out of a cycle like that. We'll do 1,000 milligrams daily and followed by 500 milligrams daily for a week and then stop. So we do a couple weeks. Now, these things are all pretty low on the evidence. That is probably not something I'll be doing. <laughs> Can I ask you to talk me through the triptans a little bit? I, I know we've covered them in prior episodes, but I, I think every time you order one, there's about 74 warnings that pop up in your electronic health record about medications you can't use them with and SSRIs and muscle relaxants. And 
but it is is could you just tell me what circumstances I should absolutely not be considering triptans and then also just kind of your overall approach to them I know it seems like they all have reasonable reasonably comparative efficacy but is there you know how how do you use them and when do you not use them are the two questions I would ask you That's a great question because people have been terrified about them since they've been on the market um probably a lot of cases unjustified um they do can cause vasoconstriction, so that freaks out a lot of people about. And there's also, since they're serotonin agonists, people have been worried about serotonin syndrome. You know, a lot of our patients are on multiple psychiatric medications. Um, sometimes they're on bupropion and sertraline and buspirone, and they're on maybe a little trazodone at night too for sleep. And then you're throwing this sumatriptan on top of it and you're like oh my gosh am i going to throw them into serotonin syndrome that has been studied pretty extensively and the answer is no so there have been in the last few years here large studies that have looked at that and the risk of serotonin syndrome appears to be theoretical rather than a real life problem um now, I don't use triptans when a patient has a history of coronary artery disease um, or peripheral artery disease, um, typically not with ischemic stroke either, although the evidence that triptans cause intracerebral vasoconstriction is low, is, uh, doesn't exist. So we don't, don't actually think it causes – it's probably safe in ischemic stroke patients too, but I still avoid it in those patients just out of safety, especially with the newer therapies that we have on the market now, which are super cool and don't cause vasoconstriction, which we'll get to in a little <laughs> bit. Um, but triptans are very effective rescue medications for migraine patients, and they should be offered to almost all migraine patients. If they, especially if they haven't tried them before, or if they don't have a good rescue option. Now, is there a difference between each triptan? I, f- I feel like there are a whole bunch, and I usually just end up with whatever is on the uh, insurance formulary that's covered by the patient. The safest one you can pick is Rizotriptan because that one is generic and it's the fastest one of that group, and it's newer than Sumatriptan, so it has less side effects. Narotriptan is another generic one, which is longer acting. Um, that's the one I use for myself, and that's has less tends to has less side effects, but takes a little bit longer to work. Um, Sumatriptan is the oldest one and comes in the most different forms, but tends to also have the most side effects. There are some other triptans as well, that like Zolmatriptan, Elatriptan, Elmotriptan. I think I think I mentioned all of them. Oh, Frovatriptan. <laughs> I'm sorry, Elmo and Frovo. It really came up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think from your perspective, it's just good to have one that you like to use, one or two that you like to use. And I would say Risa and Nera would be your safest because those are generic and every insurance that I'm aware of covers those. Excellent. That's great. And I I feel slightly bad, Paul. I don't know about you, but did did you know patients were, a lot of patients were experiencing chest tightness when they were taking Sumatriptan? Apparently that's, that's common. I was not as familiar with it as I am now. Why don't we we put it that way? (laughs) I typically warn them about that ahead of time because uh, they do think that, you know, some patients get that and they think they're having a heart attack and uh, reassure them that. Yeah. You're like, here's a medicine which may be uh, unsafe, you know, for people with cardiovascular disease. It's going to cause chest tightness. <laughs> you know, <it laughs> Which will seems... distract you from the headache. It's the mechanism of action. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I did want to ask, I, I, I saw, I think it was almost a throwaway line in one of the papers that I was reading in preparation about co-prescribing naproxen with the triptan. So you take them both at the same time. I think it said a study 
show that they're better in combination than sort of either one is monotherapy. Is that something that you're doing in, in routine practice and that I've been missing? Yes. So I tell patients not necessarily that specifically, although there is there actually is one pill that's combined naproxen and sumatriptan. Um, but uh, the in practice, I typically tell patients that it's okay to take their other rescue medications with the triptans. So if they like using um, the combination analgesics like uh, acetaminophen, caffeine, and, and aspirin, or which is uh, known as Excedrin, or um, ibuprofen, or naproxen, whatever their favorite other medication is of choice, I tell them they can either take, they can experiment with it and they can either take it at the same time or they can kind of overlap them throughout the headaches. The triptans, for the most part, can be repeated once in two hours. The only exception is neurotriptan, which is four hours. So I tell patients, you know, if you want, you can take them both at the same time, or the, as in the ibuprofen and neurotriptan or sumatriptan or whatever, you can take it at the same time or you can kind of space it out in between doses, so you're getting to take something every hour or two. Um, and I tell patients, go ahead and experiment with it, play around with it, and see what your best rescue regimen is. They're, they're safe to take together, or you can space them out. The main thing that I want is for you to, to knock the headache out and not be miserable. So we, to make sure we give a fair amount of time to these newer drugs, Ada, she's been on, we, we gave you butalbital, naproxen, sumatriptan. Um, she's on topiramate for uh, prevention. In the past, she's tried propranolol. What if she wanted a new agent for abortive therapy, since we're talking abortive therapies here? I know there's some newer CGRP agonists, uh, antagonists rather, and then this other one called the uh, DITAN, which I had never heard of before, which apparently you can't operate heavy machinery can we, t- we talk through those a little bit? Like, I- I'm starting to see them in the wild. You said she's tried triptans before? She has, yes. Okay. So typically from an insurance perspective, most insurances will cover the new therapies if they've failed two triptans before, hmm. um, which isn't too bad. A lot of – at least – well, I mean I'm a bit biased because by the time they get to me, a lot of times they've failed many, many therapies. So – I don't see that as that daunting, but you know, for somebody in primary care, it might be a little more daunting. But typically, the insurances want a failure of two triptans before, or a reason like coronary artery disease um, or some sort of reaction to triptans in the past that, that they cannot try two triptans. Um, there's two G-pants medications. Uh, which is Remegipant and Ubrojipant. And then there's the Lasmiditan, which is um, by itself in that class right now. Um, that one, the DTANs, are very similar to triptans, except they don't cause vasoconstriction. So these mm. three medications have been a revolution for my cardiac patients because – for many years, they could not, they had very limited options. They could take acetaminophen. Um, a lot of, you know, as you know, NSAIDs aren't great for cardiac patients and patients with peripheral vascular disease either. A lot of times they're on medications that might, NSAIDs might increase, increase the risk of bleeding for 
So a lot of time, and if, if they had a CAD or P, PVD, they weren't eligible for triptans either. So they they had limited options at best. And these two new meds have been a revolution for a lot of these patients. Um, they're also good for you know patients who have failed triptans or can't take triptans for other reasons. Um, the DTAN, like I said, is um, similar to the triptans, except for it does not cause vasoconstriction. It's a bit more centrally acting, so there's more side effects with it, but it's also many patients find it to be very effective. It just can cause a lot of dizziness and sedation. It comes with an eight-hour driving restriction <laughs> after taking it. Um, they did a driving test, and they found that even in patients who felt fine, they were still had limitations in their driving ability up to eight hours afterwards. So it sounds like Zolpidem. That I think there's a similar thing. Like you shouldn't drive. Tell people tell people don't drive. You know, if you're taking the Z drugs. So that um, one, you know, it's been, you know, I there's only a subset of patients who I prescribe that for. Typically, people who are retired or unemployed, because having a job that you drive to is challenging, or if you're driving children around. Um, that one can be challenging, but it's a good option for someone who maybe isn't, doesn't have those issues and wants an effective rescue treatment or something to try. The G pants have le way less restrictions. Um, and they, there are a few drug interactions with that one, which, um, you know, nothing that's dangerous, but there are some medications that, um, since they're in the CYP system that we avoid, taking those with, and I'm not going to list all those for you tonight, and I don't think I can off the top of my head, but there are a few drug interactions with that class just to be aware of. Um, but side effect profile is great. There's no driving restriction. Um, they don't cause medication overuse or rebound headache, which, you know, the triptans and NSAIDs and over-the-counter medications can, um, which is really nice. Um, and they're well covered by insurance. So, for instance, one of them is on our Medicaid formulary in Ohio, which is, you know, at Ohio State at a public hospitals, we have a lot of Medicaid patients. So, you're, you're going to have some listeners who are thinking, oh, all these treatments sound great, but how many of my patients are going to be able to afford them? Um, typically, these newer treatments are actually fairly well covered, but even by Medicaid. Um, Honestly, the, the population that I've had the most difficulty with is Medicare patients for all these newer treatments yeah. just because they have the donut, the Part D, they have the donut, and then there's all, so many different plans that it's hard to keep track of what's covered on each plan or not. Um, but as far as your um, Medicaid patients, um, they have actually pretty good options with the newer medications, which is nice. And Paul, I don't think we've talked about it on the show, but with the newer diabetes drugs and things now we're using for heart failure, and I've just, I, I never was that aware of it because I was mostly prescribing these generic, very low cost medications. And just recently, this has just been the bane, like the Medicare patients are some of the hardest to prescribe for. Is that your experience too? Yeah, I've gotten to be friends with a lot of um, online coupons is long and the short, but there's a lot of sort of negotiating and, and trying to get things paid for while you're, while you're in that gap. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a challenge. It's, it's actually easier if patients are on medical assistance. The, the medications in Pennsylvania are just very affordable, which is fantastic for patients. Um, 
It's just uh, I wish it was the same for other other prov- uh, insurance providers. So okay, so we've talked about you. You've taught us about some exciting new for uh, especially for patients who have either um, not done well with the older with the older medications like the triptans or or can't take the triptans because of cardiovascular disease or something. Um, these these newer agents they sound great. With the lasmiditan, we have to watch out for this eight-hour driving restriction, which maybe <laughs> maybe newer versions will not have such. You know, maybe they'll they'll be able to fix that with newer versions in the class. And then the ghee pants, you said that they um, they can be taken. Uh, you just have to watch out. Just run an interaction check before you're prescribing it, just to see with what what else the patient's on, because they're in the, they they affect they're affected by the other things metabolized by the SIP system. And um, these are taken. Uh, these are taken. It sounded like almost like triptans. The ghee pan. The, you, you take it once, and then you can take it again in two hours. Correct. Well, for the for ubrojapant, yes. For remegipant, uh, which is known as Nurtec, that is just a one time, one once a day. Okay. Or one time one one time a day medication. And are they also used for uh, prevention as well? Can can one? I thought I was reading one of these could be prescribed as well for prevention. Was it the? It's remegipant, and it's dosed every other day. Also, again, just like with triptans, these are safe to take over the counter medications or, and other NSAIDs with them. And actually, it's safe to take triptans with them too. And I have a few patients who. They have a lot of migraine attacks and they take, you know, they kind of interchange them so that way they have more coverage per month. Because the nice thing again about the G pants is that they don't cause rebound or medication overuse headache. So they can take their triptan, you know, maybe eight or nine days a month and then they can use the G pant for another 10 days and all of a sudden they've got 20 days out of the month where they can take something, which is nice because. You know, some patients have a lot of migraine, and even though I do lots of prophylaxis things and tinkering to make them better, they still have a lot of migraine attacks. And um, it's nice to have the option to to take different classes, um, which is nice. So since we have some G-pants that can be used for prophylaxis, if you use that prophylaxis dosing, then I assume you can't use another G-pant for rescue then. That's a good question, and that's been a recent, you know, we're still studying that as far as safety goes. Some preliminary safety data shows that you could take two G-pants in the same day, and I'll explain how. One is a Togepant is just for prophylaxis, and that is the newest one. Uh, that is daily dosing. So you might ask, what would someone do who's on that who has a breakthrough migraine? What do they do? And what if they can't take triptans? And so, you know, we're kind of uh, in the Wild West with this territory because these meds are pretty new. Um, but the early safety data seems to think to show that it's okay to take two in one day. But that's an area of study. That's an area actively under study. Gotcha. Remegipant's easier. And what I've been doing with that one is that one is dosed every other day for prevention. So what I tell patients is if you have a migraine attack on your off day, go ahead and take it again that day and just skip, you know, just reset the cycle. So if you were due to take it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you get a migraine attack on Thursday, go ahead and take your dose on Thursday again and just skip Friday and, and start start again every other day on Saturday. 
Um, with that one, they give you 16 per month, so you have a little wiggle room with the pills. And another option is if they have another rescue treatment, they could use it on their off days too. Excellent. But that one's a little bit easier to, to solve that problem with. So there's two prophylaxis agents, the rem- remegipant and the atojapant, and then there's one that's rescue only, which is ubrojapant. And remegipant is, is both. Mm-hmm. Now, these G-pants, these are all in this like CGRP area. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have, when we're talking about prophylaxis, we have all these like monoclonal antibodies, right, that are also within the CGRP system. I, I, I don't think I quite understand how the CGRP works to begin with. And then can, you, then can you talk a little bit about these new monoclonal antibodies that we can use? Sure. So CGRP is a protein that circulates around your body. It's involved in vasodilation, but antagonizing it does not seem to cause vasoconstriction, which is, which is nice because um, that would cause its own problems, right? So it's known to be a factor in migraine uh, in, a, in a lot of patients. I, I don't think it's every patient because we clearly have patients who, who take these medications and fail all of them. And it's not their driving factor of their migraine. But for a lot of patients, it is. And it's known to be a factor in migraine. It's been studied for about 30 years. And these medications have revolutionized our field. There's four monoclonal antibodies, and those are all for prophylaxis only. And those are large molecule the G-pants are smaller molecule, and those are antagonists. The monoclonal antibodies all end in MAB. There's four of them. Three of them are subcutaneous injections, and the other one is an IV infusion done every three months. And the, the subcutaneous injections, how often are those? Typically monthly. One of them, Fremenizumab, also known as a Jovi, can be either or. can be either one every month or three every three months three shots at once every three months. The data does not support much of a difference between the dosing. So patients kind of have their own preference. Mm-hmm. And are these, like we talked about with trying to get the abortive medications covered, the newer ones, um, do they have to have been on two different medications for migraine prophylaxis before they're able to access these monoclonal antibodies? That's a great question because this is where you guys come in. It can help me out <laughs> um, if I, before, <laughs> before they get to me. Typically, they do require step therapy and at least two, sometimes even three classes of medications. And those three classes are your classic prevention medications. So you have your antihypertensives, which are the beta blockers, typically propranolol, metoprolol, natalol, atenolol, candesartan, which is a ARB. And that one I think is kind of not as well known about, but actually has some pretty strong evidence for it. And verapamil is sometimes used as well. It's a calcium channel blocker, um, typically more so in migraine with aura than without. Then you have your anti-seizure medications, which are topiramate and valproic acid. And you have your antidepressants, which are the tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline and nortriptyline. And then venlafaxine has some pretty decent migraine prophylaxis evidence too, and that's an SNRI. Now, the trick with all these is, and you know, I've learned to play the game with insurance companies, but it's also for the benefit of the patient, is that you can sometimes get around trying some of these medications based on the patient's medical history and clinical pictures. Like for instance, in the migraine world, we have a lot of young female patients. Migraine heavily skews towards women. And it typically starts at a young age. So we have a lot of younger female patients, and some of them just naturally have low blood pressure. So, and, and I just have a number of patients that have either low or normal, low normal blood pressure. And I make the argument it wouldn't be medically safe for me to start an antihypertensive on these patients because they're going to pass out. And then they're going to hit their head and have an even worse headache. <laughs> 
But anti-seizure drugs. I would never put a woman of childbearing age on valproate. Topiramate's harder to get around, but if they have a history of nephrolithiasis, you can get away with not prescribing that. If they're low weight, you know, I do believe it or not have some underweight patients and you know we can argue against using topiramate in those patients the antidepressants are even easier a lot of times if they're already on one or two of them i can make your same serotonin argument that we talked about earlier i can say well this patient's you know they're on sertraline and trazodone already i don't think it would be smart to start an antidepressant on them or they've already failed one before but there's definitely medical arguments for not using some of those older oral medications that you require for failure to get step therapy up to the newer treatment. So Mm. it's not a daunting task. If you notice that a patient hasn't tried one of those and they would be eligible for it medically, it can be helpful to us before they get to us to start one or two of those so they to see if it'll work before they get to us. And realistically, I mean, Paul, Paul, I'm sure you treat a lot of migraine headaches in your practice, and fortunately, uh, not everyone make, needs to make it to a neurologist, right? Yeah, no, I it, I think that's exactly right. I, I was going to say, I, I'm not sure if it's worth saying out loud, but something I, just that I read about in advance of, uh, in, in terms of preparing for this, is uh, one of the papers mentioned, I never heard it framed in exactly this way, that all the first-line FDA-approved preventive therapies for migraines um, were originally approved for other indications. No one was set out to make a, a migraine preventative medication. It's either a blood pressure medication, an anti-epileptic, a medication for depression, even Botox or botulinum toxin does not qualify for that. So it's just amazing that we, all our primary treatments, we stumbled upon by accident, it seems, which is just indicative of maybe how challenging this is to treat. Yeah, that's very true. But in primary care, I, I, I do think, and I'm sure our listeners know this, that most of most of us have some comfort with these medications because it's yep. not it's not easy to get someone in to see a specialist for their migraines and and I have had decent success. I mean, the patients that it doesn't work, we really need help with and that's why it's great to have these newer newer agents. But I uh, in case the listeners haven't treated migraine yet, I mean, beta blockers, uh the some of the blood pressure meds we mentioned, uh TCAs, SNRIs, you know, I, I I have had some success with a fair amount of patients, and then there's some of those patients, um, especially if they've had a long history and there's they haven't been doing well, it's harder. But if you catch someone early on and put them on a preventive medicine, I've I've had some good success. I, I take candesartan, and it's been like a miracle for me. Um, now it didn't do much for my blood pressure, but. It- <laughs> It killed it killed the migraine, so I have stayed on that, and I went from, you know, having probably during bad months, which would be weather changing months here in Ohio, I was getting like eight to ten a month. Oh my gosh! And now I'm down to like one a year or something like that. Oh, that's so, incredible. I mean, nice. Those meds can work, um, and I've seen them work. You know, topiramate is a great, great anti-migraine drug. It just has a lot of side effects and. You know, there's certain, you know, a woman planning pregnancy soon that's not is not a good candidate for that one either. Um, and there's certain people who shouldn't be on that one. But, you know, that you're and the beta blockers are great options for for people as well. I mean, those are typically really well tolerated um, in patients and, and they really can help. Well, I think the other side, the, the flip side of the coin of trying to um 
talk to the insurance companies into paying for medications is to actually think of the secondary indications for the migraine medications. I think where I see people get tripped up is which one do I pick to start with? And if, you know, if you have someone who, and, you know, very rarely do you see headaches in isolation or other diagnoses. If they have high blood pressure, try a beta blocker. If they have some anxiety, which many migraineurs do, maybe a TCA is the right medication or, you know, candesartan, which I'm learning about tonight. Um, sounds like a great option if you have somebody else with, with high blood pressure. So there are, there, there are ways, there are secondary indications, it sounds like, that can guide you as to sort of where to start in the primary care setting before you kind of give up and refer right to the headache specialist. This episode is sponsored by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed because they are the hiring platform where you attract, interview, and hire all in one place. As I said, I've used Indeed and it's easy to use. It was easy to set things up. We attracted a ton of high quality candidates and I was able to keep it organized and do everything right there on their platform. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner and they're gonna help you do it all. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit to your first sponsored job, plus earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to learn more. Claim your credits at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is sponsored by locumstory.com. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Maybe you're burned out and you need a change of pace. Maybe you're looking to supplement your income. Well, locum tenens, it might be the solution for you because if you're considering locum tenens, you can do it either full-time, maybe you can do it on the side. If you have a question or two or maybe 20, go to locumstory.com because they have all the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends for your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help decide if it's right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to all your questions from the very basic to the very complex, and their blog features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. So what are you waiting for? Now, now do you think that, you know, as, as primary care providers, uh, we should be getting to the point where we're doing some of these monoclonal antibody CGRPs? And if, if so, I know you've sort of explained there's a little difference between each of those four types. Like, is in, in your personal experience, have you had better better use with one or another, or is it based on insurance or? Sure. So, you know, ideally, yes, it would be great if you guys were comfortable with prescribing those. Um, they're actually, you know, pretty low side effect profile um, with the monoclonals. Um, one of the problems that you all will run into is that in some places, the insurance won't even take a prescription for those from a primary care provider. Now, in Ohio, I think I've seen PCPs prescribe those before, but uh, in some states, it, you know, they say that it has to be come from a neurologist or a headache specialist, and there are some insurance plans that require that. So 
it's just one more way that they they want to make everybody's life harder so they don't have to pay for them because those meds are kind of expensive. They're about eight thousand dollars a year. But I think if the in the perfect world um, where insurance wasn't an issue and if you were comfortable, you know, had tried tried them, were comfortable with them, I think they're they're fine. They're certainly way less dangerous than the other monoclonal antibodies that you've you're familiar with, like the ones that suppress your immune system, um, which are the majority of those um the 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 monoclonal antibodies really have very few side effects you don't have to worry about the immune system um there can be most of them have injection site reaction on the label um which you know can be treated with a little bit of benadryl and some ice and things like that and creams um Amovig, which is arenumab, is the oldest of them by about five months. So it's not like it's much, much older. <laughs> but um, that one has a slightly different mechanism of action than the other three. Um, and that one, that's an antibody to the receptor for CGRP as opposed to the antigen. And that one has some more side effects that have been added to the label, including hypertension and constipation. Um, we've had some patients get some pretty bad constipation from that one. However, that one also has the most, long, since it's been out the longest, has the most long-term data and safety data. Um, and, you know, I they all work really well. Um, the Viapti, which is um, uh, eptinizumab, is the IV form that's every three months. That one has slightly better efficacy data, um, but... Uh, is a little bit harder to get through insurance. Usually, they want you to fail one or two of the other of the other monoclonals first um, because it's a little bit more expensive. Um, but arenumab, fremenizumab, and galcanizumab are the three most commonly prescribed, and those are all subcutaneous injections. They all come in an auto injector. Um, you have the option of getting a preloaded syringe in fremenizumab and galcanizumab. A lot of my medical people and anyone with diabetics and anyone experienced with injecting themselves actually usually prefer the syringe versus the auto injector. But and that's a subset of patients. But most patients, you know, your average patient would want the auto injector, and they're really easy to use. Just um, give themselves a shot once a month, and that's it. So, Kevin, other things that have come up in, in the reading that I, I probably don't have as much comfort with, well, one I clearly don't have comfort with, and one I probably should have more comfort with, is <laughs> is magnesium is the one I should probably feel a little bit better about. And then there's also a lot of talk about the nerve stimulators, which I, I don't have, I don't think any patients that have tried, and I don't know a whole lot about, but it seems like it comes up over and over again. I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking to those two things that it sounds like I should know something about. Yeah, that's a great question, because there's a lot of patients and, you know, I always tell my residents, there's three groups of patients that I see. Group one, which is they come to me and they want to make sure they're not dying and they want an MRI and a neuro exam. And once I give them their MRI and their neuro exam, I never see them again. And then group two is they want, prefer natural treatments or not pharmaceutical treatments, but they would prefer not to be on a daily prescription medication if they can avoid it. And then group three wants everything. So the group two is a, you know, a pretty large group of patients, as I'm sure you've all experienced. I mean, that, and I always joke with patients that just, you know, the, typically patients who don't like to come go to the doctor, you know, and I just say that just makes you normal. Most people in the world don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to be on a bunch of medications. 
So you got to have something for those people. The nutraceut- what we call the nutraceuticals are good options. So those are the oral treatments. So there's magnesium, which is great. Um, it comes in a lot of different forms. The best studied would be oxide or citrate in the literature. Very, very safe medication. Maybe not so great for your patients who have diarrhea already, but if they have, I think constipation is probably more common anyway, and it can help with that. Very good migraine prophylaxis treatment, especially even if they, especially if they have aura or menstrual migraine. That's a really, really good natural treatment that they can take on a daily basis. Other ones that have in that group that have some pretty decent evidence include riboflavin, which is B2, and coenzyme Q10. Butterbur is one that comes up quite a bit. That is a herb or like a, a root. That one has had some safety and contamination issues in the past. Um, there's a very long term for the contaminant called pyrolizidine alkaloids, if I'm saying that right. <laughs> No one's going to bat check. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's sad because Butterbur has some pretty decent evidence in migraine prevention, but because of some contamination concerns and the fact that these natural treatments aren't regulated by the FDA, we don't recommend that one as much. There's also been some other ones like Feverfew that have a limited amount of evidence as well. Regarding the stimulators, so the, mo- the oldest one is Cephaly, which is a superorbital nerve stimulator. It first looked like a tiara, and I think they were afraid that they were going to be maybe seen as too feminine or something. So now it's just like a sticker that goes in your forehead, and it stimulates your superorbital nerve. It's used for both prevention and rescue treatment, and there's decent evidence for it. The advantage of it is that it's there's no side effects. It's very safe to use in almost all patients. There's a little bit of an upfront cost. It's a few hundred dollars. And then after that, it requires some maintenance electrode changes every once in a while. And that's 20 or $30. The bad thing about the stimulators is that they are typically poorly covered by insurance. So tend to be for my my patients who are more well off or with the means to afford them. Cephaly is probably the most affordable out of all of them, which is the super orb because it's been out the longest. But that's just something to be aware of. You know, at Ohio State, Dr. Chu, I'm sure, knows that we have a large number of Medicaid and underserved patients who, you know, don't have a lot of money to spend on treatments out of pocket. But the stimulators can be good options for patients who have the means to afford them. Some other treatments, they're coming out with one that's kind of similar to Cephaly. It's not quite out on the market yet, but it's also, it's a combined supraorbital and occipital nerve stimulator. Uh, there's a vagal nerve stimulator, which is used for a lot of different purposes. It's used for cluster headache too and other some of the other trigeminal autonomic cephalgias, but it has some limited data in migraine prevention and acute treatment. That one can be a little bit more on the pricey side and again is, is dicey with getting insurance coverage. There is a transcranial magnetic stimulation which is used for other purposes, which you may be familiar with. It's used in the psych world Mm. for depression. But there's a device called Spring TMS, which is just for migraine prevention. Uh, It's delivered, and and it's also for acute treatment. And it's delivered as a a couple of pulses 15 minutes apart twice a day. That that one's expensive, and it's been challenging to stay on the market. Some of the companies had some financial problems. There's uh, Nerevio, which is one of the newer ones. You may have heard of that. That's a stimulator that you wear on your arm, and that's a peripheral stimulator, and that's used for rescue treatment of migraine. That one's pretty cool. It it, it connects to your smartphone, and you can just kind of lay there, and it gives you a treatment on your arm, and it's supposed to use the neuromodulation pathways to kind of trick your brain into coming out of a migraine. 
It's the best way I describe it to patients. And there's some decent data on that one too. That one can be a little bit pricey too um, for patients to afford long-term to use if, if they have a lot of migraines, especially. But uh, all these all these devices have different coupon programs and deals and things like that um, that they're running from time to time that make them a little slightly more affordable. You mentioned the transcutaneous superorbital nerve stimulator was over-the-counter. People could buy that on their own. Are these other ones also things patients can buy on their own, or do they need a prescription from you? They need a prescription for everything but the cephaly, which is the superorbital nerve stimulator. That one is okay. over because it's been out long enough. It's been it's, that one's been out for at least ten years. That one is now in the last year went over okay. the counter. If you Google image search it, it's fascinating. It is just row upon row of serene high cheekbone women staring off into the middle distance with this metal device in their forehead. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but I've I've never seen that before. Yeah, I had never heard of it. I tried it once at a conference. It was pretty relaxing. I mean, it feels pretty good. It's like a tingling on your forehead. It It feels nice. Well, this has been fascinating. I feel like I know so much more about these newer medications. And now when I see them in the wild, I'm gonna know a lot more about what to do. And uh, I can't thank you enough for all this time. So I think we we need to get to take-home points. If you could give us maybe two or three things you definitely want the audience to remember from this discussion. So I think regarding secondary headaches, I think the most important takeaway is typical migraines do not need to be imaged. But if there are concerning signs, worsening of their migraine, other systemic symptoms, history of cancer, immunosuppression, or advanced age, then you need to consider neuroimaging, usually with an MRI, except for in very acute cases. As far as treatments go, I think from a primary care perspective, the best thing that you can do for us is to just try to get them started with their prevention and rescue treatment, like get them started on some basic therapies that you're comfortable with, like some of the older oral preventative agents that we'd mentioned and rescue treatments like the the triptans, if they're eligible, can put your patient on the path to being eligible for more expensive treatments quicker. Well, thank you so much. And we will fade this into the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I I almost powered through. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health for CME at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Isabel Valdez, to Chris Chu for co-hosting, and to our whole team. The production and editing is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. And Stuart Brigham composed our theme music, Paul. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>